0: Hello, and welcome to Inkspire from Tharston, the podcast that talks
1: about all the different ways that you can help your print business to lead the way. In each episode, we'll cover a range of topics such as the latest and greatest technologies for printers, industry trends, and knowledge that could help your business run faster and smarter. So here we go. So today's episode, uh, we're going to be talking about a book that we recently got in our company library. Uh, Here at Thorstham, we're all encouraged to develop ourselves uh, and have a great collection of self-help business books that we can check out and take home to read and and, uh, and make some time to to, to read them as well. One book in particular that caught my eye uh, was because of the title, and uh, I guess partly because it's similarity to our mission statement. Uh, So our mission statement is to use our technology and knowledge to help our customers work faster and smarter. Uh, and this book is called Smarter, Faster, and Better uh, by uh, an author called uh, Charles Duhigg. Um, he's actually uh, also more known for The The Power of Habit, which was his first book, and this is a, a sequel to it. And after reading it, I thought it'd be a great one to, to share with, uh, with, with you guys, uh, and I'm joined here today by some of my esteemed colleagues as well. So I've got uh, Amanda, Amanda Newman.
2: Hi Ross, yes, thank you. Um, I'm the head of marketing here at Thorsten, and um, looking forward to uh, being part of this this Inspire podcast. Thank you.
0: Cool, and also joined by Phil Dodge. Hi there. Uh, I'm a, I'm one of uh, Ross's colleagues, and uh, I'm one of the solution specialists here, and uh, it's going to be cool. Cool.
1: So, um, yeah, so the Smart and Faster book, which we've all taken time to to read, The Secrets of Being Productive. Um, So in the the book, it kind of picks out uh, these eight main chapters that covers uh, motivation, uh, teams, focus, uh, goal setting, managing others, decision making innovation and absorbing data. So they are the, the key areas that um, Charles focuses on, and kind of interviewed different businesses and different uh, people to, to, to pull this together, did a lot of research. So um, so yeah, I, I thought that was a good idea to start off. would be um, If we all picked out uh, a chapter that in particular stood out to us the most. So uh, ladies first, Amanda, what, what, what stood out for you the most out from, the, from this book?
2: Well, it was actually the first chapter, which is all about motivation. Mm -hmm. I think um, it stood out to me because of the the work we've been doing at Tharston recently. For the past 18 months, we've been working on the culture of the company, and we've got an employee engagement program, and uh, um, I've been reading a lot about motivation, and there's some similarities there with the the other things that um, I've I've written in preparation for that program. Um, But it had some new stuff as well, which I thought was really interesting. Uh, basically, um, the, the point of the chapter, chapter is to say that those who self-motivate, according to lots of studies, they earn more money than their peers, they're happier, they say they're more satisfied with their lives, the families, the jobs. So the, the key message here is that if you can learn how to self-motivate, you are going to be happier, your life is going to be better mm. um, and um, there's, there's lots of interesting stories throughout the book, isn't there, to, to illustrate this point. Yeah, of quite time. inspirational stories. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. yeah. Um, but it, the, the so the, so a couple that stood out from this chapter, first of all, from a medical point of view, they, they studied... Um, Certain people who were experiencing just like a general feeling of apathy and couldn't be bothered doing anything. Um, previous to that they, they led really busy lives, they were really motivated, uh, successful businessmen and women and all of a sudden just one day they, they just to they get up and go just got up and left and they just couldn't motivate themselves.
1: I remember that and they thought that they had strokes or something yeah. you know something right. major had happened
2: to them. Yeah, yeah but, but it hadn't so they all got checked out there was nothing Wrong with them. Um, they weren't even depressed. They were. They, they acknowledged that their personalities had changed, but they didn't mind. They were fine about it. And um, one um, doctor um, in the 1980s, I think it was, sort of found this link between them all. Looked, did some more tests, looked at the MRI scans, and saw that the um, certain part of your brain, um, the the striatum. Um, which affects um, your um, when you make a decision. So it affects when you make a decision. Um, they had sort of like burst blood vessels on there, and, and what it meant was that it actually prevented them from feeling this sense of reward that we all get from taking control of a situation. Yeah. Um, so so basically, so what he's trying to say is that people are more motivated to complete tasks. When um, the sort the chores are like presented as decisions rather than commands, mm. um, so it's why companies like Sky, cable companies, mm. when you're signing up, they'll they'll say, "Oh, do you want paper billing or paperless billing? Would Would you like to choose what month your direct debit comes out?" So it's giving you this illusion of choice. So we actually, we're, we're more likely to uh, to comply if you want to, to play along. Um. So so the other story, the other key story that it that from That chapter was about um, the Marines and um, the 13-week boot camp that they have, and it's all centered around this um, having a feeling of control. So it all started when this 53-year-old general, Charles Krulek, I think it it was from memory. I must have wrote that name down. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that's that's what it was. Um, He spent some time sort of talking to psychologists and. He he saw some research by the Marine Corps about the most successful Marines. And it was all about, so the most successful Marines had a really strong internal locus of control. Have I got that phrase right? Yeah, 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 absolutely. absolutely. Yeah, and so people who have an internal locus of control feel in control of their lives. They take control and they know that they are the the thing that affects the, the rest of their life. People who have an external locus of control think that they don't have any choice and it's about fate and you know they're a victim and stuff happens to them. And the people who've got this strong internal block of control are more self-motivated and happier and more successful. So the the whole marine training camp is built around that.
1: So it's kind of like the growth mindset approach that you can yeah you 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 can choose how things are going to be yeah and, and things don't have to be yeah. learned helplessness mm.
2: yeah you' so you're not born with a certain level of intelligence you' like got the same a, exactly, mm-hmm. yeah you might be stronger or weaker in some areas, but if you put the effort in, you can be just as successful in a skill or a language or whatever as somebody else, it's cool. all about you know how much effort you put in yeah. So, um, so how how do you apply that to to business and in particularly you know the printing industry? Well, I think it's um, I think it's important because the printing industry is going through a little bit of a talent crisis at the moment. I keep seeing these headlines about that. There's something from what they think the other week. I've seen it from um, BPiF and a few other publications as well, um, and it it's you know, it's production staff, but it's, it's, it's all kinds of stuff mm. in the printing industry. We can't seem to attract the people that we want. But if you focus on motivation, if you focus on creating this like, team of really happy, self-motivated people, then you're going to create this culture where people want to join you. Um, they'll talk to their friends and family about working there and how great it is. You could put it on the website, that that type of thing. So, I think it's really important that all businesses, but particularly printing businesses, do some um, put some time in to learn a bit more about motivation and, and these types of things that we can do to make our um, staff employees really really happy and motivated. And, um, and you know, there's another part of the book about giving them a purpose. Um, I don't know if anybody's read a book called. Start With Why by Simon Sinek. Oh, yeah, I was going to mention that, there's
1: it mm. like some similar themes here, it's a, it's a, that's one of my, my favourite books as well actually, Start With Why. Yeah,
2: mine um, too, yeah, and it talks about um, injecting the sense of purpose into your team, letting yeah. them know why you're coming to work and the good that you're doing. Mm. Um, so I suggest reading that book, it's a really interesting read, yeah. it, isn't it? Um, and um, There's also
1: a great um, YouTube video that uh, that Simon it's done as well, but it tends to act as a summary of it. So okay. if you've not got time to read the book, certainly uh, uh, check that out and, and have a look. It's, it's a 15 20 minute kind of snippet in yeah. in as well. Yeah. Um, Sorry. Um, so no, no, it. it's
2: okay. Yeah, it's just. It, uh, just... Um, briefly to finish it, it goes back to that and um, the and the um, janitor story doesn't it? Yeah, mm-hmm. um, We, we tell we, us that story. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so JFK is having a tour of NASA, this is um, during the time of the big space race and all of NASA was um, trying to get a, a, a man up there um, before any of the, the competition um, and JFK had a tour of NASA and he happened to find this janitor um, and he said hello so what what do you do here at NASA? And the janitor said, um, well sir, I'm here to help put a man on the moon. And it just goes to show what a great culture NASA had that so even the janitor knew why everybody was there. He had that greater sense of purpose. Yeah, okay, he's that yeah. same goal. It doesn't didn't matter how repetitive or you know, mundane his task might have been, mm. he was happy to do it because he had this greater sense of purpose. Um so, um, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot that any business can really apply to it, but particularly if we've got a bit of a talent crisis, it's mm. important.
1: It's interesting as well that, that um, I remember that, that part of the chapter, the, the logics of control, and I think there was a, a bit where they talked about people in an old people's home.
2: Oh, yeah. And,
1: and uh, they, they, they found that, the, that the, the people survived and lasted the longest or lived the longest, but had this um, pattern of that they'd, they'd get into the old people's home. And they completely reorganized the, 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 the furniture mm. in the room.
2: They called them subversives, didn't they? Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, and kind of, and they
1: did, when they, they, the fact that the nurse or the, you know, the caretaker found out they'd done that, well, if, if you wanted to change it, you should have told us we could have helped you. And well, I, would, I didn't want that help. Yeah. And I just wanted to to kind of rearrange it and make it my own. It gave them that feeling of, of, of I'm in control here, even though I'm in a, a, an institutionalized effectively. And then there was even, one chap who traded his, they got given the, the, the food, and he traded his chocolate pudding yeah, the, for, for some broccoli, yeah. and they asked him why, he did prefer broccoli to chocolate pudding, I was like, hell no, I, I, I love chocolate pudding, but yeah. I want to choose what I'm going to eat, and it was kind of back and control. And actually, around that time of reading that, when I was at home, my, my 11-year-old daughter, she, I noticed actually that every, every six months or so, she she decides to sort of change round the way out of a room, mm-hmm. and you're going, it's completely changed round. And mm-hmm. I was talking to my wife about that it's that focus of control that, yeah. that she it's something she can control in her environment and does it all by herself. And I was like, Oh, be careful, you could in your back, move to bed, and stuff like that. But it, it, it's a lever to it because that helps them to empower themselves and, and be more. And you it got me thinking, in terms of, uh, you know sorry to, to drag it into to MIS, but we talk about um, production planning often to, when we're out talking about customers, don't fulfil. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. And so you, you can use production planning to, to, to create a work to list um, for, for the operators and they clock onto to the data the terminal and they get this whole work to list. And there's often that debate about, you know, should that schedule follow the exact same pattern? You know, does, does the operator have to do it in the sequence that you determined? Or, do you give your operator that flexibility to look at the, 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 the work to list and go, actually, I'm the expert here, I'm the operator of this machine, I'm going to run that job first because of the, the, the covers that are in there, mm-hmm. and then I'll do the next one, just as a simple and, and, and kind of reorganize that sequence themselves. So long as the, 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 the job gets done in that day mm-hmm. and, you know, and in the time that it needs to be, does it matter if they, if they, if they switch it around a little bit? And I guess mm-hmm. it really, you know, there's no right or wrong answer there, mm-hmm. but it did kind of make me think, actually, that's a great way to give operators, if you can in your environment, that, that feeling of, of of focus of control and that, that, that choice and mm-hmm. motivated, that what their decisions are important as well, and they're, they're the experts quite close to that. And the book does explore that
0: particular concept, Doesn't and it mean, can, be, it can okay. be very beneficial yeah. uh, for a business. If if people are allowed to take that type of control mm. within reasonable grounds,
1: yeah, I think if you set time and and that's the importance of the why, isn't it? Mm. Um, you know, um, the the vision uh, and, and me in my personal. life, I have that, um, each year we sit down and set time as to what is what is our vision as a family and, and me as an individual for, for the year ahead and and, and the, the long term vision. And it really helps then that every decision that you make, every task that you're going to focus on, you can ask yourself that question does that task, does this decision fit with the with, with the vision that I'm trying to achieve? Because if it doesn't, put it to the bottom of the pile or it, it can help you make decisions. And similarly in, you know, in a work environment, because we know what the thoughts and vision is and what our mission is. We know that when we're out there, we can, we can be empowered to help customers all in the same way. We're all kind of uh, on, on, the, on the same team and all striving for the same thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think it is a really, really good uh, chat on that. It? Mm-hmm. It's a while back since I, I read that, and you've just reminded me of some of the, the, the great things about it. Mm-hmm. Oh, cool. So, uh, so Phil, what about you? What was what was the, uh, the standout one for you? Well,
0: the one I'd rather like was some in chapter three, which was on focus, um, probably one that's uh, quite significant in our modern world now because um, we were in a situation where we we're dealing with a lot of technology, a lot of data, and being able to focus on the key and important things you know, in our working lives is really, really important, um, particularly in the world of automation. And what happens is in the book, they, they outline a couple of uh, cases of where uh, lack of focus or what the psychologists call a cognitive tunneling, where you get fixated on a, a particular concept or something in front of you and you neglect key information around you it can lead to, you know, potential disaster and how to actually avoid it. And there are two cases that involve uh, uh, basically an Airbus A380. The first is an Air France uh, airline 447 from Rio to to Paris, where basically what happens is during the course of the, the, the flight, the, uh, the, the Pytot tube actually ices over, which is a sensor to detect airspeed, and basically what actually happens is the computerized systems, which are fantastic on the aircraft, basically start to provide what appears to be conflicting information um, and basically the, 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 the air crew get get basically focused, they get into this uh, cognitive tunneling technique. And basically, they don't even realise that they're actually into a stall situation. But they are actually ascending, so they get into the, the maximum ceiling of the aircraft, 37,000 feet. And despite the fact they're on full thrust, they are actually stalling, and they are crashing towards the Atlantic. And what is kind of very, very sad about it is that once the the, the equipment starts functioning again, they are unable to unravel the situation. And part of this is because. Uh, they haven't actually uh, utilised mental models to actually help them understand the world around them, even with the computerisation. And the, the result is that the aircraft actually does sadly um, crash into the Atlantic. Everyone perishes and dies. Um, I can't wait for my flying in exactly. <laughs> <laughs> when in fact, fact, had they, had they actually applied their mental models, they would have said, right, hang on a second, this conflicting information is not correct. They could have used uh, other cues with looking at other instrumentation they could have descended the nose, they could have um, basically uh, had the equipment working again, and they would have known what altitude they were at. But conversely, um, there's another story in there about an identical aircraft, this time it takes off from Singapore, but there is an entirely different type of crew in charge of this aircraft. Has this got a happy ending? It is definitely got a happy ending. (laughs) And this is a Qantas Flight 32 from Singapore, um, flown by a very experienced captain, constantly drills his crew on these mental models even before they get on the plane he's saying right guys what happens if we encounter a problem what happens if there's an engine failure what do you do and he's constantly drilling and he's he's asking these guys to keep on giving a response of what they would do in these critical situations
2: So, is that what a mental model is is that you you're just sort of painting a picture of what you expect
0: correct yeah and constantly are, are asking questions what if questions and Going through a series of standard scenarios, and to be fair, when we we take the manufacturing environment, um, there are going to be a known number of scenarios that we have to deal with. And and rather than actually facing them and possibly hitting a bit of a panic situation or not knowing what to do, having those mental models allows us to react effectively and efficiently Mm -hmm. and productively to that that particular challenge, which, of course, life always presents to us. So in this second example, what happens is the um, the aircraft takes off about 7,400 feet, um, they basically have an engine failure, and it's classified um, later on by the air investigators as the most critical uh, failure of equipment on an Airbus, other than you know, complete destruction. And basically, again, the crew get conflicting information because what's actually happened is the engine's exploded. It's actually compromised lots of systems. You know, A lot of the equipment's not functioning. They can't control the aircraft correctly. And the guys start to work through all of these pieces of information. And it becomes a cascading environment where the the, the actual uh, problems start to actually am- amount to a very significant amount of workload, and uh, basically this is uh, essentially a pivotal point. I'm a yeah. Well, <laughs> essentially, when 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 the uh, the NASA psychologist started to review the entire data, they said the next point was the critical critical decision made by the captain, which basically uh, results in success or failure. And he basically turned around and said, Right, we're getting loads of conflicting information. I need to refocus. I need to get out of this, this tunnel. And what he did was he decided to compare his Airbus A three eighty ironically to a Cessna. What's a Cessna? Has, it, this is a small single piston aircraft, a lot less complex than a, an Airbus. Right, but okay. so this, maybe this start to learn how out fly flying. Correct. Okay. But the reason he did this because fundamentally it doesn't matter whether you're this very sophisticated aircraft or this very simple aircraft. He said, basically, I've just got to look at how much fuel I've got. Look at my flight controls. Are my brakes working? And have I got viable landing gear? And with this, he started to work through with his crew, could they actually land this aircraft back at Singapore Airport? And as it turned out, they could. There was a very slight margin of error, but they could actually do it. So what actually happened is, that they, he applied these mental models, realized that this was possible. Now, they, later on, when they'd done an analysis of the previous Air France flight, the crew hadn't applied those same mental models. They hadn't worked through these problems. So there was a distinct difference in the psychology of the two air crew. And what happened was that the captain of the Qantas flight successfully managed to actually land this aircraft Yay. by applying <laughs> these mental models in these what-if uh, um, scenarios. Uh, and basically, they landed and they were fine. But the key part is that these mental models provide a scaffolding to evaluate the massive information you get because you're not going to actually get all the, the relevant information and be able to sift through it. And sometimes you've just got to take a bit of a gut feeling, but apply those models and not get over, get overwhelmed by, by all the data coming in. And it's something that we can apply in the printing industry. And I think the last comment has to go to the captain of that Qantas flight. He said, you can delegate thinking. Computers fail, checklists fail, everything can fail, but people can't fail. We have to make decisions, and that includes deciding what deserves our attention. The key is forcing yourself to think. As long as you're thinking, you're halfway home. So it's really, really important to, 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 to apply that focus to your day to day activities. Yeah, I can see
1: that. Um,
0: something that popped into my head there was like the,
1: the use of sat now. So when you're out and about on the road, and, and, and I remember before sat-nav, giving me age away a little bit, but yeah. before sat-nav, <laughs> that, um, you, you, you plan out your journey, and you, 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 you only have to do a journey point and you remembered how to get there again. Exactly. But now with sat-nav leading the way, and that's great because it means you, you can save time and it will get you there more efficiently, and, and there's lots of benefits to it. But I very rarely remember the way to get there mm-hmm. again. I'm totally reliant on what you sat there. It's no, that no, thinking been. thing, isn't it? Yeah. That you're not thinking it through. But then, yeah, it, it's, it's, so it's kind of conscious of actually thinking about the, the, the room as well. My wife's always telling me, to switch your sat-nav off. We'll just find the way. Mm-hmm. No. <laughs> anyway, anyway, that's another yeah, debate. I
2: think um, he, the key takeaway for me from that chapter was about um, thinking about what's coming up. So in the morning on your way to work, mm. think about your day. And visualize how it's going to be and if it doesn't work out if something goes wrong to like knock you off your path mm. you will immediately um, identify that and go yeah. that's not supposed to happen and set yourself back on the path yeah. if you're going to go into an important meeting mm. visualize how you think it's going to be build this mental model up of it so, that it so that if again if anything goes wrong you can identify it but you've also sort of planned how you want it to end up so yeah, you can exactly. steer, steer that And the narrator often
0: talks about narrating part of your life in order to actually (laughs) reinforce these behavioral patterns, which is quite Mm -hmm. interesting. And it was particularly, after these kind of, you know, we we, we heard about these two near air disasters in in one case and one that was obviously fatal, the psychologists have, have, have discussed with people who are in, you know, quite mission critical roles, you know, what makes a good Good decision maker from from a not so good decision maker. And they've gone and spoken to firefighters and people that are working, obviously, in hospitals where critical decisions are being made. And often these people cannot actually tell you explicitly what they've done, but because they are kind of narrating their life and observing in high detail and focusing, they're able to turn around. There was one case in the book where where this nurse was able to actually say that child has a problem. There was no data to indicate that that was the case but she had this gut feeling mm-hmm. and it was basically she had seen and observed certain conditions of, of the child which raised a lot of alarm with her and they were able to actually prevent her death and it's that focus that yeah. ability yeah, she to...
2: built a mental model of what a healthy child looks exactly, like and yeah. without really realizing she realized it didn't match up and it was just slightly was like the like colour yeah, of the, the skin. The colour of the skin wasn't yeah, right. Yeah. Like I think it's yeah. like a
1: template that you can yeah. compare and contrast to, yeah. to to identify that that isn't right. And I think um, on that story as well with the pilot, the Cessna, something I picked up from there was, was uh, that you just mentioned then is how it broke it down to like four or five mm. key indicators to, to, to navigate through that successfully. And it sounds really cheesy, but it's like a key performance indicator for your, for your, for your life or for your business, isn't it? Absolutely. So yeah. it, 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 you've got lots of other information surrounding you, and, and, and sometimes that can conflict. And actually, uh, if you if you just have that snapshot view of how is my business performing, my five KPIs, you know, sales, customer service, on-time deliveries, uh, invoice values, and, you know, production, uh, efficiency, whatever them, them are for your business, that they can help you drive through all these different conditions. By if, if they're all right, then hopefully everything else is all right, and then you can you can fix the other things as you go along. Mm. So it's giving you that, that same yeah. thing, a model of what do I expect it to be, what
2: your business K- KPI should look like, so you know if you're yeah. deviating from them, that you need to set yourself back on that path.
1: Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, I, it reminds me of a, another um, book that I've read um, uh, that talks about actually when things don't go to plan mm-hmm. um, and, uh, and it's a, a simple uh, kind of mantra of, of, of can't change it and uh, so you, you've got to question yourself you know you might get really mad about something because it's not going as you want it to and, and, and it, 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 it suggests that you, you have like a say sort of a five minute time limit to just rant and rave about it and, and get your angst out and everything and at the end of that, your is goes off and you've got to ask yourself the question, can I, can I change it? You know, is, is it? Is it in my control? And if you can't change it,
2: just can't
1: change it, smile, deep breath, and move on. Um, if you can change it, then what can I learn from it? So like I said, kind of a, t- a tangent there, but kind of related. So yeah, so, so thank you, Amanda. Thank you, Phil, that was uh, very good. So uh, I'm going to share what I, I thought was um, uh, one of the, the key areas for me. And that was uh, uh, Managing Others, the chapter on Managing Others. And I think I liked it because the, uh, the, it covered kind of three things in, in, in that chapter. It starts off with a story about the kidnapping and how the FBI tried to solve it. And it, it, it kind of comes back to it at the end. I'm not really going to go into that one too much, but it's really, really interesting reading about that and how um, they, uh, they, they, they had this software that they was meant to try and connect everything together. And they tried to develop the software so many times and spent millions and millions of dollars on it. And actually this guy came in and used a bit of an agile approach to developing the software and, and, and gave the people who were developing the software the power to make decisions and and it, it, it did it for a lot less money, and it's that software that helped them solve the kidnapping crime and, and save the day. Uh, but so, yeah, it kind of it, it starts off with that, and then it, it goes off into other sections. You know, like, I want to know what happens with the kidnapping. Anyway, uh, <laughs> but one of the things that really uh, uh, inspired me was um, it, it, it talks about um, Toyota and uh, General Motors uh, car plant in Fremont, in Fremont in the U.S. So... Um, uh, uh, this this car plant was originally owned by General Motors, uh, and and all that mattered to General Motors at this particular plant was cheap production on pace. That's all they were interested in. So even when mistakes were made on, on the, the the production line, and we all I you know kind of the, the, the way cars are manufactured, it's that conveyor belt approach, and each person has their own area of responsibility, and it goes down the the, the, the line. Um, and so, even when mistakes were made, at no circumstances is this conveyor belt to be to be, to be be stopped. Uh, instead, they, they mark the car as a, as a, as a defect, so they put a, a, a wax mark on it or a post-it note or something. It carries all the way down the, the production line. They, they build the car, and then when it gets off at the end, someone takes it away, and they, they, they deconstruct it to try and fix the problem, which then means that the car isn't as... as uh, 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 engineered as well as it could be, and it usually leads to faults later on. And it's like, what a, what a waste of resource and time and, and everything. Um, and he even talks about that there's one instance where somebody even has a heart attack. And because it was ingrained in all you know, the operators there not to stop the conveyor belt. The the conveyor belt move on until they could then get to him. They didn't stop it and, and try and rescue this guy. How, how scary is that? Because they all had this fear factor that if we stop the conveyor belt, it's going to cost $15,000 per minute and we can't stop it. We'll get sacked or we'll lose our jobs and everything. Anyway, eventually this plant shut down. It, it, it just wasn't performing and it got a reputation of being one of the, the worst performing uh, production plants. Um, and it got shut down. A couple of years move on, I think it was, and then um, uh, General Motors actually partnered with Toyota, and Toyota had this great reputation of of lead and agile manufacturing, and so they formed a. Um, it was called NUMIC, which was New United Motor Manufacturing, Inc. Um, and Toyota and General Motors worked together to develop this, this, this uh, plant. So. Germans were hoping they could learn from Toyota, and Toyota, I think, wanted to prove that as well that they could take their culture mm-hmm. and and, and, and pitch it up and put it in place somewhere else. Because the wars out there, they, they, they have to, when plants shut down all the union wars, if they ever opened it back up, they had to re employ kind of like 70 or 80% of the original workforce. So they, 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 they did just that, and it, it follows the story of this one guy called Rick Madrid, um, so when, when they were at the, the production facility, right, all the sorts of shenanigans he got up to. So this Rick Madrid, he, he used to create these um, these cocktails that they all drank on the production line made of orange and vodka, and they were all drinking them, and nobody batted an eyelid. And there was people doing drugs, there were people stealing things, they were doing all sorts of things because they just didn't care um, for, for various reasons. Anyway, Rick Madrid got the call, went back for an interview, thought the interview went pretty well, uh, and then right at the end, they said to him, well, what, what, what didn't you like about working at, at this Freeman month plan? And, he, and he, he said, well, whatever he was doing, he knew that it was going to be un, un, undone, and any suggestions he made were ignored. They were once in this new uh, 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 tooling device in for him, and, and it was all engineered the wrong way, and he said, what well, if you put the, the panel on, on the left-hand side, which is the side I'm working on, it will save you time, but it's completely ignored it. And it just, uh, any ideas that he, they put forward, they weren't interested. Uh, you, you were just there to do what you were, you were told, and uh, no one was kind of interested in their opinions. And it just generally didn't like working on cars that he knew had problems and that, 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 that nobody cared about the quality. So anyway, he kind of thought, oh, I've blown it, and, and, and actually he got his job back. And one of the first things Toyota did was they, they took him out to one of the plants in Japan as an educational, and they did that with a lot of the staff. Uh, and he got there, and he was like, "Hang oh, I mean, a minute, this is exactly the same. It's a conveyor belt line. You've got a pull cord, you know, to, to stop it in emergency. They're doing the same as, as what we do. Why have they wasted my the time when you're here?" Uh, but there was one key difference at this Toyota plant, um, and that was they could stop the production line whenever they wanted. If they felt the need to, and it was in, they were encouraged to uh, actively stop it. So, just Toyota had the, the 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 attitude that it's better to stop it and fix the problem there and then, and actually that the person who's closest to the problem to fix it rather than than any, any other way. And when they pulled the cord, and it did get pulled frequently, he talks about one one incident where he's watching of this. They're trying to use a screw gun to to uh, screw in the bolts, and it missed the bolt, missed threads, and so this guy just pulls the cord halfway. Straight away, the supervisor comes running over. So so this Rick thing's always going to get you know, into know in real trouble now. Actually, the supervisor was there to help the guy who's trying to solve the problem, and the guy who was, who, with the screw gun was barking orders at the supervisor. And the the, the conveyor belts moving on very slowly, and it got to the point where it, it it's still not fixed. It so they stopped it completely, and so then the the, the manager comes over, and the manager is there. And he lays out all these tools, like a a, a nurse does in, a, in an operating theatre, ready to pass things to the guy so that he can solve the problem. And eventually, it fixes the problem. And whilst everyone this is all happening, all the other operators. They're uh, you know double checking the work and making sure you know getting prepared, ready for when the line starts again. Anyway, it fixes the problem and the line starts off again and off it goes. No 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 trouble, you know. And I think even afterwards they even said, right, what can we do to 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 solve this problem? And they, they go away and they engineer a new new tool to help them. So Toyota's uh, kind of key thrust from this is that every person in the organisation has the right to be the company expert in something. So, whether it's someone attaching mufflers, then they're the expert in exhaust systems, or the receptionist, they're the expert in uh, greeting people and making a good first impression, which kind of ties into that NASA thing, doesn't it? And that, um, uh, everyone knows what the, what the goal is now. they're contributing. And, and, you know, so they, they recognize that everybody has a skill and expertise, and Toyota absolutely hate wasting, so they don't want to waste that expertise. Uh, and it, it, so it kind of goes away from this kind of going. Wow, this is really cool. And they're told that when they go back to the Fremont plant, that they, can, you know, that's the same uh, approach to take to it. But everyone is fearful of doing this uh, back at the, the Fremont plant. Nobody does it, um, and so whilst they, they can see the, the the potential for change, they don't do it. Anyway, the story follows on that. Um, Later on, uh, test old Toyota, and yes, I had to write my name down. <laughs> who's the the, the, the the president of Toyota at the time? He was the the, the grandson of the the guy who, who, who invented Toyota, I guess. And um, he, he makes a visit to the Fremont plant, and is um, he, is watching the the, the the production line. And this guy is trying to fit the tail light in on um, the back of the car, and, and it's not fitting in properly. So. Mr. Mr. Toyota kind of leans forward and sees the name badge of Joe He says, "Joe, you know, pull, pull the cord, pull the cord. We, we'll help you." And he's like, "No, no, no, sir. I can fix this. I can fix it." And he's using all the, you know his crowbar and trying to get it fixed. And 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 Mr. Toyota just says, "Joe, pull, pull the cord. Stop the production line." And he's like, "Honestly, sir, I, I can, I can fix this. I've got this. I've got this." So eventually, Mr. Toyota leans forward, grabs Joe's hand, and says. We're going to pull this cord together. So they pull the cord and it stops. And, and then they give him time to fix the problem. And, and you know, everyone's kind of watching around. Oh my God, what's happening? It he stops. He's going to get fired out of here. And he doesn't. And at the end, when they start the line again, the, the, the Mr. Toyota kind of bows forward to him and says, I, I, I apologize to you for not instructing managers the importance of, of helping you to pull the cord. Mm. And, and I promise that we're going to fix that problem. Mm. So it, it, it's, it, the, the, I guess the message from that is that they, they empower those closest to the problem. And I think any business can learn learn from that, that, that listen to the people on the front line or that are dealing with that particular problem uh, or in production or uh, wherever they are in the business, because they, they're dealing with it day in, day out, and, and let them help describe what the solution to that be and, and listen to them. and Because what what... The kind of messages is that the, by trusting them with authority. So if you think this Fremont plant, eighty percent of the workforce are the same people. Yeah, they've gone back up and running. It becomes one of the most agile and lean and effective production plants. Mm-hmm. Same people, just a different culture, a different approach, and it's all because they, 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 they've trusted them with, with with authority, which gives them the feeling of responsibility. I mean, you know, they, they could abuse couldn't they could constantly pull that cord and keep on stopping it and the plant could go out of business. But they all know that, that, that they, they, nobody wants to do that. They realize the consequence of doing it, so they only do it when they need to. So they, they've got that feeling of responsibility and and, and and everyone's on the same side. The managers, the operators, the supervisors, they're all fighting for that same goal, that same same vision. They know what they're trying. to Yeah, they, they've got a greater sense of control, and that led to
2: a massively increased production. Obviously, um, there's, there's um, a lot of similarities, mm. isn't there, with any production facility, and yeah. printing's no different. Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're talking about workflows, trying to automate your workflows, yeah. you know, empowering the people who are closest to that to look for solutions and, and um, giving them the the um the authority to to stop production and make changes mm. and bring things to your totally, right. and it
0: it's, it's, it's worth reading because it 's a really inspirational chapter mm. and, and, and 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 if you've considered that it's difficult to change a work culture it's, it's really worth reading from that perspective because that is a complete one eighty in terms yeah. of a, a position of a work culture i mean it, I, I mean ross hasn't gone into some of the technical detail um Previously, the plant was in a dire state, yeah, and yeah. it is really dire, and it just goes to a completely amazing state. So yeah, I thought I'd was a bit about prostitutes in the garden. Yeah, huh? and, yeah. And, and to be fair, to, us, yeah. to be fair, he's not joking; he's <laughs> actually part of it. So, but but it is
1: inspiring. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so it it, it it really it made me think of uh, when when you're managing a project, whether it be implementing a system or, or you know an MIS or um, or trying to bring about change and stuff when when we always say you know create that that team who are going to uh, deliver that project you have a visionary of, uh, who, who's giving you the vision of what, what they think is going to uh, look like and what success looks like but the people who are actually implementing it listen to them but give them the the, the empowerment to, to to raise their hand up and stop the projects if need be and and, and focus on how we're going to fix that particular problem and and, and um uh, you know, how how we're going to move it forward and, and listen to them, maybe change the vision if you have to, or, mm-hmm. or change what the goals are, and um, I, I just thought there was a, a lot to learn from that. And uh, interestingly, another part of that story is that to, to help engage uh, and the, the, the employees, they also give them a commitment of no redundancies. And it's a time now I to principle that even in times of, of financial uh, uh, difficulties, the, the first thing they'll do is all the senior management will take pay cuts um, and they'll redeploy people, even you know, to work in the canteen or uh, cleaning or gardening or something and and and, and all collectively avoid redundancies and, and they went through four financial uh, difficulties. Nobody believed that if this would happen. The first time it happened, um, they didn't make any redundant they managed to fight fight weather the storm and get through it. Uh, and then when everyone kind of you know they, everything picked back up again, they found that the staff were even more loyal. They worked mm-hmm. even harder, mm-hmm. and they went through that four times. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and he follows on in, in just a chart in this to talk about a study, uh, very briefly, where um, the, the James Barron and Michael Hannon um, they, they study tech startups um, over a period of fifteen years, and they identify. Um, five different styles of businesses. So there's the star model, which is where they hire um, for, um, from elite universities or other successful companies. And, and venture capitalists love this type of business they you got nice fancy offices and wants, you know, uh, a, a nice perks. But they, it's all, it's very competitive. It's all about being the star performer. Um, there's an engineering mod- model, so they then find another type of business where it, it's more about a mindset of, Solving problems, and this is a stereotypical Silicon Valley startup, and there's no individual stars; and they're all focused on collectively solving tech problems. But eventually, they might become stars themselves mm-hmm. because of their, their achievements. Then there's the bureaucrat- bureaucratic and the autocratic. So the bureaucratic is a kind of a business where it's it's, it's got thick ranks of middle managers, uh, job descriptions, organizational charts, employee handbooks, and a weekly all hands meetings regularly communicate the firm's values and stuff. Uh, and the odds bracket is very similar to that, except everything all points to the desires and goals of one person, usually the owner or the, the CEO. But then the fifth one was the commitment, and you probably see where I'm going in with this and where Charles is going in, in the book. Uh, and this is kind of a, a, a model where they throwback to where uh, people worked for one company for life. You know, I'm gonna be there until a, a, a die or retire um, and they were very hesitant to lay people off and that kind of business would hire hr people uh, as a first thing whilst all the other startups would be hiring engineers or more salespeople. when they compared all the results over that period of time half of the, all of these businesses and there were a lot of them stayed in business for, for at least a decade some of which actually became the most successful in the world i think that google was in there and and other other companies like that. And um, now the star companies, they they did produce some of the biggest winners, but in general, most of them failed in record numbers compared to all the other styles of businesses. So there's more risk there, um, and and they were less likely to make it to where they focused themselves on the on the, the public market, the stock exchange. Um, and and one of the reasons is they often failed, which is an internal rivalry, and um, but. You know, one of the the standout performer out of all of them was the was the um, and the most consistent was the commitment style um, and it, it, because of the the they were working on the principle of of, of trying to find people that were going to stay and work there for for life, and and that meant there was loyalty there. They they, they, they did things to encourage loyalty, mm. uh, and also that meant the customer relationships were better because that people were there for a longer time. So they had the one standing relationships with the customers. And it, it, although it, it doesn't stand out to venture capitalists as the best one, on paper, the commitment approach, which is a bit like the Toyota approach, Seems to be the the, the 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 best approach, so that was another thing that I can't. Well, I
0: think also, Ross, wasn't it? There was a very low failure rate of these businesses as well.
2: It was zero percent, actually. Yeah, yeah. It was, zero. yeah, yeah, yeah. Not a single one of them had gone out of business,
0: yeah, yet. out of all
1: that particular sector. And you and might they might have grown, taken a longer time to grow to where they wanted to yeah. be, but they got there, mm. they still got there in the end. And uh, yeah, like I say, it was zero percent failure rate. And, they, they just they, I think the principle was good employees are, are, are always hard, uh, the hardest asset to find mm. We talked about the, when we talking about the, the talent in the print industry uh, and, and when everyone wants to stick around you've got a pretty strong advantage mm. and that was kind of the, the key message of it so so yeah then that, that area for me was was really I mean I don't manage people particularly but it, 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 it just struck me as a what, what a lot of things you could learn from that personally and and as a business as well
2: Mm.
1: So yeah, I, I really enjoyed that. Um, it was
2: good. Yeah, just Amazon—the importance of culture, doesn't it? Really, mm. employee engagement and culture.
1: Yeah, I know that's something that we're really we really big on here at Arson as well, and it's, it's a journey we've been going on for some years now, isn't it? So, yes. and it, it, we can see it's paying, paying dividends now—absolutely paying dividends.
0: Yes. So yeah,
2: yeah. Well, before just before we finish, I suppose is um, if if I may just. Introduce a second one. I know you said just one, Go on, yeah, yeah, yeah. but I'll. I promise I'll be brief. Um, so there was another chapter which which stood out from it because I've actually used it myself. So it was the chapter about goals. Um, they talk about General Electric using um, having used smart goals for many years and how successful they were. But when they wanted to improve performance, um, they tried to make the SMART goals more specific and get people to use them more often. And it had the opposite effect. So they got a team of consultants in and they said, um, the SMART goals are not really worthy goals, really, in in summary. So it would be things like, um, the goal is to order stationery once a week, and this is how I'm going to do it. So although people got a kick out of actually ticking things off, actually writing the SMART goals out and then ticking off when they've done them, they weren't really purposeful goals. So mm-hmm. they introduced this concept of stretch goals as well. So you you sort of pick a an overarching goal that stretches yourself. Um, so it might be something like running a marathon. Um, or it might be something, if it's business-related, it could be um, increasing sales by 20%, something grand that makes you a little bit scared. But then you break that down into your SMART goals then. You you break it down into different steps that, um, you know, every time that you achieve each of those smaller goals, you're one step closer to achieving that stretch goal. So I actually started doing that myself this week, um, and it, came up with a number of stretch goals relating to, to my role here and what I want to achieve um, and then broke them down into into individual SMART goals as well so that, mm-hmm. you know, I can just deal with one SMART goal per mm-hmm. stretch goal. Um, yeah, so I, I found that, um, yeah, that yeah,
1: inspiring. Yeah, I, 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 I do remember that part of the... Um, uh, it, it, I guess it's the principle of, of, of setting a big goal and then breaking it down into smaller parts. And, mm. and by setting that bigger goal, you, 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 you're reaching for, for something bigger rather than just the, I'm just going to do this, this, and this. And something, something that's safe and conservative, you're, you're mm. stretching yourself. And I think they talked about how, how athletes use this approach, don't they, to improve the performance. And um, Yeah. And, 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 yeah so, and, and that's something that I know personally, I, 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 I've... I, I use a lot as well that kind of approach. But I never realised I was doing it, but where I, I, I look at a, a big sales target and then break that down and, and how I can achieve it and what I need to do to achieve it, and it, uh, it, you know, for, for my personal thing and same same in my personal, sorry, for my, my business role and, and in my personal life as well, kind of goals that I want to achieve doing the same, breaking it down into small manageable tasks, and it doesn't seem as overwhelming,
2: does it? Mm, that's um, right.
1: Yeah. And, 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 and then you can see that you're, you're, you're a bit like a barometer on when you used to do the uh, employee pizza, when they used to be raising, mm-hmm. raising money, or whatever. <laughs> oh, <yeah. clears throat> you're getting closer and closer to, to hitting that, 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 that target, that jackpot. So,
2: Yeah, you know, I, cool. it, it, I think it would be um, good for any company really to ask their team for, you know, to for perhaps three goals a week. This is something that um, I was listening to on a, it's like a daily video I get from mm-hmm. someone called Donald Miller, who wrote a building a Story brand and he was saying that he's, he asked all his leadership team to submit three goals per week. Um, just to focus them actually is what they're going to achieve. That we can, um, you know, I think that's something that anybody can try and see how, how it works for their business.
1: Yeah, because then you've got the added advantage of accountability, haven't you? Yeah. Uh, certainly. It's by by publicly stating this is this is what I am uh, going to do this week. You feel more accountable and responsible that I've got to achieve because I've got to in, in a week's time. Be able to say yes or oh, I know that i've done it and, and I'm, I'm a person that keeps my word so when i yeah. say i'm going to do something i'm going to do it so it, it's kind of yeah it's a really clever way to to, mm-hmm. to tell And again I, I, that's something I, I use a lot accountability publicly tell people what i'm going to achieve and what i'm going to do and they all think i'm bonkers <laughs> but um but yeah it, it, it works mm-hmm. it, it, it helps you to, to keep on track
2: a pressure, yeah, yeah.
1: Cool. So, well, if you're going to bring in another topic, then I'm, I'm going <laughs> to indulge as well and, and um, talk about um, one of the other ones that struck a chord with me, which was um, uh, the last chapter, uh, Chapter 8, which was absorbing data. Uh, and it was a bit of a heavy, heavy chapter, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. And, uh, awesome. um, and, and, and it's almost a bit controversial because in, in the world of, of Tharson because we're all about management information. And actually, some of the findings of this... We're a bit like, oh, hang on a minute, how does that fit? So um, the, the the very brief story is that there was um, a, um, a, an elementary school or primary school, as we call it in the UK, uh, in South Avondale, uh, which I think was in Cincinnati yeah. or <laughs> Illinois somewhere. Yeah. So uh, anyway, so um, it, it's it's one of the um, it's in a, a, a deprived area, and they've got lots of challenges and, and everything, and the big, um, they basically. Um, uh, are trying to improve the performance of that school, and, and they get lots of resources thrown into it. They have all this super duper software that, that kind of tracks the performance of the of the of the, um, of, the indi- of the pupils, and that is accessible to the teachers and also the parents to try and help them understand what what each individual pupil needs to help them move forward. And this software has been used at other schools, you know, and it's worked really really well. Uh, and and helped them, but what they found at this particular school is that over a period of six years they didn 't really notice any any difference and they were like well, what 's going on we 've got all this all this data and all this information and the, 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 the crux of it was really is that they had all this management information, all this data, but nobody knew what what to do with it, so they had the answers, but they didn't they had the information, but they didn 't know what what that meant and, and what to do with it and and, and and so what they actually did at that particular school was they said forget about the the the, the software actually um in, which is like, Wait a minute. <laughs> like, like no 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 software is good but it was like forget about it um instead i get index cards and, and and sit down and write down the performance and the the, the purpose of that was it was helping them to digest the information better and understand and recognise the patterns and what to do with it. And mm. um, so but, it, but also to identify,
0: sorry to interrupt yeah. you, know, the relevant questions that needed to be asked. Yes, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Because they're looking at the performance of their students or sometimes the lack of performance and saying why?
1: Why? Why are they yeah. not achieving that? And I think one of the so it, and it turns out that this really helps to turn things around, this school becomes a really super-performing school. Um, One of the things I think that's missed in this or overlooked in this chapter though is that when they change this approach and they're still gathering all the data together um, and they're they're putting the teachers in a room together and they're all digesting and compiling that information together, they're sharing it on, on, on whiteboards, they're putting graphs up on the wall, they're sharing ideas and, and exchanging what's worked for them, and and and, uh, and and kind of looking at the data and saying, well, what about if we, if we try something different, and then they'll measure the results of that over three or four weeks and see if it's made a difference. Um, and I think that's the bit that, that's, that's maybe overlooked in this, that the reason for the success is because they've took that information, they've understood what they can do with it, and they, they've They've created a community, they've, 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 they've talked and worked out how they can use that to, to improve the performance. I always remember um, uh, a, 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 a customer that I had a long time ago, a, a, a gentleman, is no longer here, I don't think anymore, but um, uh, he, 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 they had a report that they used to run all the time. I remember we upgraded them uh, and this report because some of the data tables have changed. Stopped working and he wasn't very happy about it. And so I went in to see him and said, you know, let, let's let's fix this. Let's see what we can do. We've got the report fixed." And I asked him what he did with this report. And it was, it was a very much comparing the estimated uh, cost versus the actuals. And, and, and I remember that actually it, it, the response he didn't really do anything with it apart from look at the report. Put it into a folder and put it on the shelf, and you had this, <laughs> this shelves and shelves of of of, of 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 folders with these reports, but you didn't do anything with it. Mm-hmm. So you could see the estimated actual, book, but didn't yeah. take that information and put it into action, uh, which was a, a a bit puzzling, really. And and so that was a a key area for me, thinking that the importance of taking that data now i think that data can just as well come from a software mm. package or, or you know dashboards and reports and, uh, and and have just as much value but it, it's it's mainly then talking about what does that mean for us as a, as a, as a, as a business or as a person mm. and, and what are we going to do with it and mm. by having meetings to to, to explore that uh, and and maybe using dashboards in Management meetings to look at performance it, that, that's the key thing—or even a simple idea of having the sales reports and writing it on a whiteboard—that could really help with, with with kind of digesting that information and, and making it more powerful. So so yeah, that's um, really really uh, interested area for me, I think, and I definitely recommend reading that in more detail.
0: Well, I think if you've done yours i'll i'll already bring up with the, the the last chapter which is the appendix where the author basically summarizes all his findings but in kind of a quite humorous kind of way really because he says well you know i did all this investigation i spoke to all these various experts in you know the ability to be you know smarter work faster and and organize myself and i i said to myself well so so this is going to be a cinch i'm going to be able to write this book in in no time at all at which point he said I started to fail, and then he said, well, I need to actually start applying these techniques that I've learned about in order to actually get this large project done." So this is where he realised, well, you know, things that appear to be chores, you have to, you know, take control of that and. You know, make, make it so that you, you've got your self-determination uh, to actually control your life and you know, break this down using your SMART goals and, and, and this kind of stuff. And then he was able then to basically start compiling the book. So that last chapter, ironically, is him telling you how he achieved writing the book, <laughs> which was the end goal by applying yeah. the techniques he'd learned about and the case studies um, so it was very valuable to him while he was still trying to manage his job working for yeah. I think it was the New York Times and balance his family. Yeah. So th- there's a lot to actually be taken from from that that last chapter. Mm-hmm. So um, which which you think Oh right I could really apply those even simple things like Oh I've got all these massive emails to go through because it's a, that's a nightmare it's in its, yeah. its its own right. It would take him hours to go through his inbox. But by applying the techniques where it was a question of, he used to hit reply to every single one of his emails and just do a one-liner. Mm. Um, and then that would take him like you know 15 minutes to do, but then come back and just expand on those key concepts. Because going back to what Amanda was saying about the uh, the, the general in charge of the U.S. Marine Corps, um, when you find that the new recruits often didn't know how to start an activity. but well, once they did, they were fine. And to be fair... I think that probably applies to a lot of us. Yeah. You know, particularly the, the chores you don't want to do, but once you get started, you procrastinate, don't you put things <laughs> off. And, and and that's the big, big 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 challenge, but if you can get past that, you can get through your tasks very rapidly. And it's it's as he was saying, it's about a question of identifying that you're doing that and then yeah. utilizing mechanisms to get past that because you will become a lot more productive and, and efficient. Yeah, I think that
1: last chapter, though, with the appendix, is, is, you're right, is is a really good one. And actually, Charles Doohy probably do not like me saying this, but you could bypass the whole other eight chapters and just jump to that. Absolutely, And, and yeah. take all the takeaway points from that. You wouldn't have appreciated the context of it so much. The, the, the stories help to kind of get that in, 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 in your head as to why it's important to do it. But you could just take the, the that last chapter... And, and take them principles and, 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 and
0: apply them, really. So, cool. although ironically, if he did his uh, appendix as an introduction, you'd be probably more geared to wanting to to actually go through the rest of the the actual uh, book in a strange kind of way, <laughs> yeah. because that would explain the science behind, yeah. you know, what you've just learned.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I definitely recommend um, uh, taking on board that. I, I'm a big believer person that when you read a self development book, it's all very well reading it. But you need to try and take something away from it and mm. put it into practice. Otherwise, what's the point in reading the book if, unless it's a, a fiction, you know, uh, book that you're reading? So, uh, so yeah. Um, so, all right. Well, let's so let's wrap this up then, and uh, uh, thank thank you for sharing every, all your uh, ideas and favourite bits there. So, uh, let's talk about key takeaways then. So, Amanda, from the the, the chapter that you talked about, we we'll talk about the first one, the, the motivation chapter. What was your kind of key takeaway from that. And what was the, the thing that struck you most?
2: Well, I would say um that the takeaway, I would like to offer it up as a takeaway to a, a printing company if if I may, just because we've done a lot of work internally yeah. at and on on that particular subject. And there's one um Key read that I didn't mention that was just an absolutely brilliant read and all about motivation and kick-started the employee engagement program when myself and um, the rest of the leadership team read it and it's called Drive by Daniel Pink. It's really interesting, um, gives studies as examples um, but you know lots of interesting stories but you know similar to this sort of approach for this book but I would recommend anybody go away and read that Mm. and, and start your employee engagement program. Yeah.
1: So that would be your key takeaway from the book?
2: Yeah, well as well as my key takeaway yeah. would be for the goals. So yeah. I've already done that myself and I'm definitely going to apply that going forward and stick with that. I absolutely love the stretch goals. And smart goals. So that's to the point where. you yourself. Yes, I've have. done it myself. And, and actually, we we have staff notebooks, um, as you know. Yeah. Um, and we're, we're running out. We've got about 10 left. So we're redesigning the moment, just sort of giving them a bit of an update. We call it the, the, the Thorsten Big Book of Why. And it talks about our vision, our mission, our values, yeah. our history, our ethos, all that type of stuff, as well as having notes pages. Um, and we're, we're actually. Um, I asked our graphic designer to put a few pages in at the beginning of the book for a space for stretch goals and smart goals with mm-hmm. a little explanation of each so that the rest of the staff can implement them Ooh. as well.
1: I can see that that front section growing and growing. With <laughs> yeah, so awesome no good no <laughs> ideas and ways to, to be more effective and stuff like that. <laughs> and no no I always, to write notes. <laughs> yeah, thank you, it, it. So, uh, cool. All right, so thank you for that. And uh, Phil, what's, what's kind of, what was your
0: one key takeaway from the book. Well, I would I would say first of all there wasn't one there were there were a lot. Yeah, and, and, as I said, the, uh, the the appendix of the last chapter, going through that with a fine tooth comb is going to very worthwhile because there's some techniques there that can be applied to day to day use. Um, but I think in our technological world, our manufacturing world, where we're being bombarded constantly um, by a number of inputs, feeds, human, mechanical, yeah. electronic, and otherwise, going back to the the chapter three on focus, it's imperative that we assess the situation around us, but we definitely do prioritize and focus on the key things that are really meaningful mm-hmm. to our immediate, you know, workplace and our goals and our stretch goals. And it's important that, that we do get that prioritization process correct. And did you get a chance to implement any of, any of the things that you'd want? Have you, have you had a go at? Yeah, yeah. Because know, any I, of that I mean, it, 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 again, going back to the appendix, um, Charles talks about the fact that okay, he's got a goal that he must actually get done in the immediate future, but Odile, oh, oh do you know what? There's incoming emails, they're distractions. Goes back to the pr- procrastination issue you were talking about. And he turns around and says, do you know what? I've got to do um, you know, task A in the first three hours of the day, so my email is off. Yeah. He, he basically is focusing, in that particular case, on that goal. Mm. Now, I haven't gone to that extreme of turning my email off, but it's about managing, looking at that email inbox at specific periods of the day, and you know, just not being distracted by extraneous rubbish, basically. Yeah. So um, it's interesting you said
1: that, that. That in the appendix, dealing with email was one of the things that yeah. I tried, and it absolutely worked. So you have your, your inbox, uh, and you know, you might have 30, 40 emails in there. And Just by very quickly going through them all and typing a one liner mm. as to what you really want to say, and then go back, so you save them in your drafts and then you go back to it and then furnish it over a little bit more. It kinda it, it really just help you to, to power through them, and I find I can get through the emails in kind of 30, 35 minutes, which is you know when you're getting so many a day, it's, mm. it, it's buying back some time. But I actually do do the um, the, the idea of, of I don't switch my emails on until ten o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. It's a brave thing to do. Uh, and, but uh, I, I focus on doing the primary task first. Uh, and I, I didn't actually get that more so. I got this idea from another book, um, The Four Hour Week by Tim Ferriss. Mm-hmm. And, and, but it's the same principle. So I, I get the primary task done first, then I switch on the emails, spend some time on the emails, leave them, and then I go back later on. Uh, and if you're really uncomfortable with that, you can always put out of office on to say, hi, guys, I'm in a meeting or I'm, I'm just dealing mm-hmm. with something I'll get back to you in the next 24 hours or something just so you've got a reply and people know what to expect. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it, it just really helps. And I mean, I, I'm, a, I'm a person, I, I deal with the email once I've dealt with, but I delete it. Mm-hmm. And I, I find on most days, at the end of that day, my inbox is empty.
2: Wow. And, and, mm-hmm. and, I'm and, jealous. And,
1: and, uh, and I've got all my other that I don't have, that uh, feeling of uh, uh that i've I, I started my day and i've got mm-hmm. nothing done that i plan to do because i've actually done some tasks first then i feel like a winner Chicken dinner, and then I do the emails, and then move on to doing other tasks, and it it, it really, really just work. I'm not saying it, I, I'm, mm. that happens every day. There are some days when you can't it can't help, but that's why I really try and focus on doing. It makes a big difference.
0: I, I do a similar thing to, to to Ross, and you know, going back to the self determination and the control thing, it's brilliant. Mm. You know, you've serviced your your customers and colleagues' needs, your co-workers, mm. um it. if it's really key. urgent, somebody yeah. will ring you. Exactly. You know, and or True. they'll they can
1: they can get in touch with mm. the office, or and it'll get to you. If, if somebody's sending an email and it's they want an urgent response, it's perhaps not the right way to, to mm. go about it. You know, if it's really urgent, you need something quickly. We, we, we you know, I'd also suggest picking
0: up the phone and speaking some.
2: Unless you're a teenager, which is too scary a concept. Absolutely, different
0: generation. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, it, was, it, was, it was one of the, uh, the heads of uh, IBM who refused to use email and he decided that it, it just was unproductive mm. because his concept was, well, they're either going to phone me or they're going to come and see yeah. me. Yeah. And if they don't do that, it's clearly not important. Yeah. It's, a, uh, it's an interesting strategy. I know i a couple of years of,
1: um, Anyway, so, so that was kind of one thing that I, I, I implemented. From there, I've, I've done a few of the other things actually mm. but I'm meant to save that for another day. um uh, and then my key takeaway really was was from that that chapter on um on, on the managing others and that was by by really pushing decision making to whoever' is closest to a problem and, and empowering and trust them mm. um to you know to take advantage of everyone's expertise and and all market innovation I think it, it, it makes a huge
2: difference absolutely huge difference Yeah, I think um, your other point was a, a really valid one don't just have reports sent out from the MIS don't just have mm-hmm. you know dashboards yeah. with KPIs and get your staff to understand yeah. the reports and the dashboards and, and, and even take part in producing them I think mm-hmm. that's really important yeah if you,
1: if you start manually creating them reports, it helps you to understand what you actually want out of the, that report. Yeah, and you're yeah. right when we were just talking about how it, 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 the people actually start to ignore auto-alerts. Mm-hmm. And I know that often when we talk, Absolutely. engage with prospective customers, it's an aspiration to do that. But you've got to be careful to get the balance that you don't overshoot that and mm-hmm. you start firing out that many emails and alerts that people just start to ignore them. Or even that outlook will start to burn that you don't read them mm-hmm. and will put it in your cutter. Yeah. you know so they never see them so it's trying to trying to get that balance so yeah yeah it's very very true cool well i think uh that's probably enough for today and uh thank you very much uh amanda and phil for, for joining I'll me on us. this one mm-hmm. uh so so cool. that's it from us so thanks everyone for listening i hope you've found it uh enjoyable and you've got something from it yourselves and um, you can check out the books and all the other references we've mentioned in the show notes uh or as well you can even drop me an email at um Edwards at Carson.com if you want to ask questions about anything further or, or discuss things. Um, so that'll be on the show notes as well, my contact details. Uh, and, and if anyone would like to take part uh, in, in one of the podcasts and join me to talk about something they're passionate about that could help companies in our fantastic industry, then, then let me know. We'd love to hear from you. So until the next episode, goodbye and uh, thanks for listening.